Okay, now I'm thinking of a form of life and I've got a bunch of descriptors here and I want to see if you can work out what kind of creature I'm talking about. Big, fearsome, reptilian, a failed natural experiment, scaly-skinned, stupid, extinct, and if my plan is working, my two interview guests today are going to rip the microphone out of my hand because I think... I've got most of the stereotypes and probably a good many of the wrong stereotypes about dinosaurs. And my guests today are John Pickerel, who is the author of Flying Dinosaurs, How Fearsome Reptiles Became Birds, published by New South. And John is the editor of Australian Geographic and Phil Hoare here at the National Dinosaur Museum. G'day, and have I actually missed any of the dinosaur stereotypes? John first. I think that was pretty comprehensive, yeah. Uh, surely there must be uh, another one uh, filled. <laughs> well, I was going to say, we are in Canberra, so I thought you were talking about the politicians when you're listing all those things off. Um, maybe uh, sloth-like. Um, that's what, like some of the older uh, uh, Victorian ideas of dinosaurs. Um, cold-blooded? Yeah, cold-blooded, that's what I was going to I don't think you said that, did you? Uh, cold-blooded, yes, okay. Right, so let's, let's start knocking off some of my stereotypes because uh, uh, let's say, well, big, for example. Let's, let's, let's hit off with big. Is that really a reasonable definition of dinosaur, John? Uh, it's not a definition of a, a dinosaur. Um, the, many dinosaurs were enormous, and they're the largest terrestrial, well, the largest animals that ever existed on Earth. But we now know that there are a whole range of dinosaurs down to very small uh, animals, and and in fact, living birds are dinosaurs. So the the smallest dinosaur in existence is the bee hummingbird on Cuba today, which which I think weighs about three or four grams. And the largest dinosaur would have been something a, a sauropod, a bit like Argentinosaurus which I think would have weighed something like 100 tonnes, something like that. So we're talking vast scales of magnitude difference. So, that, so some dinosaurs were very big, other dinosaurs are tiny. Uh, Phil, do you think this is skewed by the, uh, the place of dinosaurs in popular culture because big and scary, ferocious, sharp teeth and all that, that really sort of fires the public ima- imagination? Do you think that's part of the mis- where the misconception comes from? Well, it certainly doesn't help like movies like Jurassic Park. <laughs> it's, you're not going to have much of a movie if you've got all your dinosaurs about the size of a chicken. You know, there's all these people running around with these chicken-sized dinosaurs chasing them, not much of a story. So uh, I think it always goes back to you know, why kids like dinosaurs. They're big, they're scary, and they're dead. So your idea is always that they're big. <laughs> well, 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 Philly, is it that what appeals to you about dinosaurs? What is it that, that gets you into the dinosaurs? Because you've devoted a lot of your time and energy into uh, dinosaurs. I think it's the the mystery of them. Like, uh, even though they're so big, we're still you think they're obvious, but th- there's so much to learn about them, and so much still to learn about them. And um, it's also, you know, being an educator at the dinosaur museum, it's there's something talking to kids and seeing, you know, the, the enjoyment they get out of dinosaurs. I still get a lot of my enjoyment out of the kids enjoying dinosaurs. So they're an amazing thing, you know. It's, and if you're working with dinosaurs, you're not really working that hard in your life, are you? Unless you're actually digging them up. <laughs> Okay, John, now uh, a word I used in my list just a moment ago was extinct, and I think that's one you might latch on to. 
Well, of course, the idea is that dinosaurs are, are extinct, but what we've realised since 1996, when the first feathered dinosaur was found, is that, that um, birds actually are just a living branch of the dinosaur family. So birds didn't only evolve from dinosaurs. Birds really are just a small, very specialised, flight-capable, feathered form of dinosaur. So dinosaurs didn't go extinct 66 million years ago when an asteroid hit. One group of dinosaurs made it through, and and in fact dinosaurs are more successful today than they have been in terms of species numbers than they have been at any other point in their history. There are about 10,000 living species of dinosaurs today in the form of birds, which is probably many more than than were around 66, you know, 100 million years ago when when the larger dinosaurs were around. You know, the species numbers estimates probably put put um, the larger dinosaurs at maybe two or three thousand species maximum we haven't discovered them all yet but estimates put them at about three thousand so today there are ten thousand living species of dinosaurs they're very successful okay so they're still here now just talk me through the line of logic because a bird is a dinosaur and i'm not sure everybody will have quite got that yet how, how do we arrive at that conclusion right well i mean the interesting thing here actually is that um a, a T-Rex is much more closely related to a chicken than it is to a, a long-necked sauropod dinosaur. So a, a, a Diplodocus is a much more distantly related animal to a T-Rex than a chicken is. Chicken, you know, on that scale, ch- chicken and T-Rex are pretty much the same small group of animals. So um, what, what we now know is that birds are a kind of a, a subgroup within the larger carnivorous dinosaur group, and um, the you know the plant-eating dinosaurs in a number of different groups of different parts of the dinosaur family tree. So, what makes a bird then? What's the definition of a bird? Well, actually, the boundary between dinosaurs and, and birds has become completely blurred now. So, it used to be that birds were defined by flight or beaks or uh, laying eggs or a number of other things. But many of these traits have now um, kind of moved into the dinosaur group. We know that dinosaurs did and had all of these things as well. So, really, what the the one final thing remains now is full powered flight. So Archaeopteryx really still is drawn as the line uh, between dinosaurs and birds because it have full power of flight. So there are a lot of dinosaurs now that were flying feathered animals, but they're more gliders really than animals that uh, were able to flap their wings and fly in the same way that modern birds do. But as I was saying, that, that boundary now is really blurred between the two. It's a bit of an arbitrary distinction. So, Phil, as we uh, look around the exhibits here at the National Dinosaur Museum, do you see lots of things that twig bird to you? Absolutely. If you just look at the dinosaur behind you, we've got uh, Struthiomimus here, which means ostrich mimic. And a lot of this skeleton looks much like an ostrich. You know, uh, We can see a lot of ostrich bird-like features in these dinosaurs. They're light bones. Uh, the way even the legs are shaped, the way their ankles are so high. A lot of people, when they look at a dinosaur, they think they're looking at a knee that's facing backwards. It's actually their ankle bone, just like a bird. So there's like bird features all over a lot of these dinosaurs, and especially now that we're starting to see feathers in the rocks of some of these specimens that are found. So, yeah, there's no, there's no argument. Birds are dinosaurs. <laughs> Move on. <laughs> We've just got to get the word out, I guess. All right, well, I'm interested in this particular dinosaur because it is, well, it does look like a big uh, emu, actually, except it's got a long tail and its legs are directly underneath it. It's uh, sitting on top of its legs, as it were, as opposed to the legs 
coming out the side. Is that one of the features? Yeah, pretty much. Like, um, you know, John was mentioning before about you trying to find species by features. And uh, one of the things that reptiles have is they've got a splayed stance to their legs. They're, they're out to the side of the body. So if you look at a crocodile or a lizard, their legs are splayed out to the side. Where um, dinosaurs, much like us, their legs were directly under their body. And that's called a pillar stance. And you can see that on the, these dinosaurs here, like Struthiomimus, uh, their legs are directly underneath, just like a bird. And another feature I'm noticing here is, oh, that's a long tail. That's a very long tail, uh, John. Uh, birds don't have tails, do they? Not all birds, but Archaeopteryx now, which is really thought of as the first bird. It was a fossil that was found in Germany in the 1860s, and uh, it, it was the first clue, really, that, that birds and, and reptiles were uh, very closely related animals. And, and from the fossil, we could see it had wings and feathers, but it also had a long bony tail, and it had a jaw with teeth instead of a beak. So some of the earliest birds did have long bony tails, but it would have been a very clumsy flyer. So it, through evolution, um, birds, it, dinosaurs actually, some of them had lightweight skeletons with lots of air spaces, but through evolution, you know, as birds became flying animals, their skeletons got lighter and they started to do away with some of the heavier features that they didn't need, and they didn't need long bony tails. So um, living birds do not have long bony tails. So to get an animal to fly, I mean, it's quite a complex thing because you had the aerodynamics and you mentioned the weight loss. And looking at this fellow here, or she, whichever, I don't see any teeth. Is that right? Yeah, well, I mean, it, there was an idea that um, birds had lost their teeth in order to lighten their weight for flight. But but actually, looking back at um, some of the earliest bird fossils, now there are whole groups of early birds that have teeth. Um, and it was just that these particular groups of early birds were some of the ones that didn't make it through the um, extinction event that, that killed off the dinosaurs as well. So there were many early bird groups that had teeth. And then the other thing that we know about teeth and beaks is that actually there are many other dinosaur groups that have beaks as well. So um, Triceratops and the other Ceratopsians are all beaked animals. But then there are some... Um, uh, oh, I'm trying to think of the name. There are some some other groups of dinosaurs that are all beaked uh, herbivorous animals as well. So be, 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 it, there's really a whole mixture of animals with beaks and teeth um, across the dinosaur bird group. Uh, now, in your book, Flying Dinosaurs, this morning, I was reading about uh, chicken having teeth, or at least in their egg form. Uh, tell us a bit more about that. Well, there's an unusual project that's been going in the U.S. for a couple of years now, uh, led by a guy called Professor Jack Horner at the Museum of the Rockies. And he, he has this idea that we might be able to kind of, he calls it developmentally back-program uh, chicken embryos in order to reawaken some hidden dinosaur traits. So um, dur during evolution, when... You know, we have genes for lots of different traits. When, you, when you're no longer using these traits, it doesn't necessarily mean that you no longer have the genes to be able to produce these traits. It just means the genes are switched off. So what this means is that, you know, birds today don't have teeth. They don't have long bony tails. Most birds don't have claws. But it doesn't mean that they don't have the genetic information inside them to produce these things. So really, Jack Horner, work, working with somebody at McGill University in Canada, is trying to find out whether we can mess around with the development of embryos and actually sort of turn back on some of these genes so that we could produce uh, chicken 
chickens that were born and would have long bony tails and teeth and they might look a bit more like a dinosaur and, and he's calling these animals a dino chicken or a chickenosaurus. What sort of reaction has he had to those ideas? Uh, there's been a mixture of reactions. I mean, obviously it's quite controversial, and I think some people in the US have said that they're, they're playing God, really. And other people have said, you know, what what are we making here? Is this going to be some kind of Franken-chicken kind of an animal? Because it's not really going to be a dinosaur again. But I, I think the real value in this project really is it's just got people thinking and it's a good educational tool and I I don't know how much success they're actually going to have in in creating something that's like a dinosaur but we'll see yeah I mean this is probably the closest thing to Jurassic Park out there it's sort of a variation, I think, of the uh, ideas. Uh, Professor Mike Archer, who's got the idea of uh, reviving the thylacine, the, the Tasmanian tiger, by getting genetic material and then somehow implanting it into an egg. Um, Phil, are there other features that uh, are atavistic, shall we? I think is the word used that, uh, like, remnants of our evolution that you see in uh, young eggs or inside eggs or inside embryos and so on? Well, expanding on what was, uh, John was saying before, um, I believe they've actually gone into, they, they were thinking about manipulating the genes to bring back a dinosaur-like tail in chickens and nobody had ever actually looked and when they have actually went into the very young chicken embryos, they recognised that in the egg chicken embryos do have a 17 vertebra tail they have a dinosaur's tail while they're in the egg and they actually absorb that tail as they go through the process of becoming a fully developed chicken so in the egg chicken embryos actually have dinosaur tails but it's the other things like teeth and things like that that's where they're going to try and turn on the genes and and uh in your talk today as i was wandering around the museum with you you mentioned gills inside humans Oh, we're, we're full of lots of lots of ancient. Uh, if um, if you ever look at a crocodile or some mammals, they've got a third eyelid, uh, so the nictating eyelid, which is the sideways moving eyelid, uh, we still have that, and that's the c- tiny little fleshy thing in the corner of your eye. Um, we have gills, uh, like uh, in the nine months before you're born, as a uh, you start off looking like a tiny wee little um, uh, 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 kind of fish-like embryo and you have gills and those gills eventually develop into parts of your skull, bits of your ear and your larynx. Um, So we're full of lots of ancient bits and pieces of our our anatomy are from uh, animals and creatures well past. Okay, today on Fuzzy Logic I'm interviewing, that was Phil Hoare, you can hear there, from the National Dinosaur Museum, and John Pickerel, who is the author of the fabulous book Flying Dinosaurs. So, John, uh, what about feathers? Where do feathers come from? Because that's a, a fairly obvious feature of birds, but we don't typically associate them with dinosaurs, do we? Yeah, so what we now know is that actually feathers are a dinosaur innovation. They're a dinosaur trait that first appeared more than 150 million years ago, perhaps perhaps even more than 200 million years ago, and um, that's something that birds have inherited from dinosaurs. But... We know from the range of feathered species that have been discovered in China, about 40 feathered species have now been found. We know from this range of species that feathers probably first developed for insulation. So the earliest dinosaurs that would have had feathers had a kind of fluffy, downy covering on them which was used for insulation purposes. And then only later uh, would that have become more useful for display purposes. So they're the next group of dinosaurs 
that are playing with feather-like structures have uh, fans of feathers around their tails and they have fans of feathers on, on their forearms, kind of wings, and they, and they would have used these for display purposes, a bit like a turkey or a, or a peacock today. And also they would have used their feathers um, to have bright colours as well. Fe- feathers are quite a good structure for displaying bright colours, as many birds do today. So it really was only quite late in the development of feathers that they had any purpose in flight. And so, you know, dinosaurs, carnivorous dinosaurs of many types, would have been using them for all kinds of other purposes before they, you know, they then used them to help get a bit of extra lift when they were running. And it, eventually, for some animals, um, they were using them then as, as aerophores to glide out of trees. Um, so did feathers begin just as feathers or is there like a transition form? Did they evolve out of fur or something like that? No, feathers, um, in, in fact, feathers are distinct, very distinct from fur. They're a completely different structure. Like, um, they're kind of, they're tubular structures. So we, we also know that they're very different to scales as well. So they, they, um, have a separate evolutionary history to these other kind of skin structures. You mentioned uh, colour. Uh, now, as I look around the dinosaur museum, I see sort of lots of reptilian coloured things. But uh, we tend to think of them as being fairly dull coloured, but uh, you're saying that's not the case. They're actually much more bright than uh, they are in popular culture. Well, the reasons that dinosaurs have typically been painted in greys and browns and greens is because we've thought of them as scaly reptilian animals and, and we... We look to modern creatures as analogies for prehistoric creatures. So if you're thinking them of, as them as kind of um, scaly reptilian animals, you look to those animals today, which are things like goannas, monitor lizards, crocodiles. So they've typically been repainted in those kind of colours. But then if you imagine them as, as feathered animals and you look at the range of... Uh, birds and feathers and feather colours today. Actually, birds have this incredible range of very bright colours that you don't get in in uh, mammals at all. Mammals are very rarely bright colours. Mam- mammals are more typically kind of browns and greys. And and um, but birds have this fantastic variety of bright colours. So if dinosaurs were feathered animals, it really makes sense that some of them would have would have been the same variety of bright colours that birds are. They're, they're the same group of animals, so it makes sense. I guess it's exciting to break the stereotypes. And one of the things you find interesting about doing this kind of thing is where you discover something that you always thought was true and then one day you go, actually, that's not right at all. It happens quite a bit. Um, Even when I first started working here, just the names of dinosaurs, because you read it in a book, and so in your head you read this name a certain way and when you start working in the industry, you you find out you've been saying the word wrong the whole time. So... Um, and with, when it comes to di- even evolution, you know, with the science is really expanding at the moment, and new discoveries like the ones being found in China and stuff, and and uh, even like the DNA, the manipulating the DNA and new technologies showing up means we can look at old fossils and old material in a brand new way and learn something new. So there's always something new on the horizon, a new technology that we're excited we're going to be able to adapt to this sort of science and, and learn something new again. Now, uh, Phil, uh, John was talking a moment ago about uh, the evolution of feathers, uh, and that's where some feature evolved for one purpose, and later on it was adapted by evolution for some other purpose. Is That must be something I imagine you've seen right through the fossil record. Yeah, um, we can see certain features being adapted. Um, a, a simple one is like our hair. 
Um, today our hair, you know, it helps insulate us and things like that. But we can see the evolutionary design of hair comes from fish. Fish have along the side of their body what's called a lateral line. And um, if you're ever watching uh, in, uh, footage of a kingfisher or, or a bird trying to catch a fish, and the fish will suddenly jink out of the way because the change in pressure of the water affects the lateral line, this lateral line of sensors along their, their skin, uh, will tell them that something's, uh, something's coming in to move. Well, that lateral line on the fish is basically our hair. So as we're learning more about these uh, amazing features and things, we, we can see them in ourselves and we can also see them in dinosaurs and a lot of other creatures today. John, uh, we, we tend to think of uh, dinosaurs as reptiles, and I'm working my way through my list of misconceptions still, and reptiles, of course, are cold-blooded. Uh, what's their connection with dinosaurs? Because uh, birds, of course, warm-blooded. Mm. Well, yeah, this is something that we were talking about a bit earlier today, actually, that um, I mean, reptiles now really, uh, it's they're more of an informal grouping of animals because it is strictly um if birds are dinosaurs then birds must be reptiles too so but, but reptiles is more of an informal grouping now but it, in terms of their metabolism and body temperature we d we know that all living birds are warm-blooded animals and they're part of the carnivorous dinosaur group now carnivorous dinosaurs most of them must have been uh, speedy animals that were, were predators. It really makes sense that most uh, carnivorous dinosaurs were warm-blooded as well. And we know that most carnivorous dinosaurs would have had some kind of feathery covering. Now, there's no point having a kind of feathery or furry covering unless you're a warm-blooded animal if you're using it for an insulation purpose. Because if you're cold-blooded and you have a furry covering, it actually hinders you you getting warm, um, you know, if you start off in a, in a cold state. So, that, so really, it suggests all carnivorous dinosaurs were warm-blooded. So we don't really know about the plant eaters at the moment. It, it, it's likely that the larger plant eaters will probably cold-blooded animals because when you're a very large animal, you don't have a, a need to be warm-blooded because you you um, conserve heat anyway, naturally, just through virtue of your large size. So it may be that these other branches of the dinosaur family tree were, were not necessarily warm-blooded or they may have been somewhere between warm-blooded and cold-blooded. We're not absolutely sure at the moment. Yeah, I, I imagine it's one of those things that are really difficult to uh, to d divine from the fossil record because you can only have indirect indicators that uh, an animal is warm or cold-blooded, so you would probably infer it from other things. Would that be right? Um, I mean, there are a number of ways that you can look into this. You can look at the bone structure as well. So, you know, in, in um, dinosaur leg bones, you can, you can see some... Um, they're kind of canals in the in the bones, and these vary slightly between warm-blooded and cold-blooded animals. So that that is another way you can tell. But I think the jury's still out on some of these things. People are not exactly sure which dinosaurs were cold-blooded or warm-blooded, or which were part way between. Yeah, there was a, a very interesting experiment where they um they took cold-blooded animals like crocodiles and they treated them like a warm-blooded animal. They constantly fed them and they made them move like a warm-blooded animal, like a mammal. And their bone structure started to grow exactly like a warm-blooded animal. So, yeah, as, like it's the jury's completely out because it looks like um, physical adaptation, what you're doing, what your lifestyle is, can also have an effect on your bone growth and things. So cold-blooded, warm-blooded, it is quite hard to see and it's, it's still, yeah, nobody's really sure.
Yes, I wouldn't mind talking to a, uh, a cellular biologist because I would imagine some interesting chemistry and things are going on. John, in the uh, history of dinosaur research and in the in the United States in particular, there was a fossil wars. A couple of really interesting characters uh, emerged out of that, and you bring that out in your book. Can you tell me a bit about these two guys? Yeah, there have been some famous uh, rivalries in the history of paleontology. But there were, there were two guys, uh, Ed, Edward Drinker Cope and Othniel Charles Marsh. And um, they they started off uh, as colleagues, but they became bitter, bitter rivals. And uh, this was really in, in the kind of uh, 1870s, 1880s in the US. And it really, they, they were credited with finding many of the common dinosaur species that people know about today. So Tyrannosaurus rex, um, Apatosaurus triceratops, meant many of these species were found in this kind of huge fossil discovery wave that happened in in the late 19th century and uh, but really they they would be trying to they'd be out there with teams of people trying to find the most species and and were really trying to outcompete each other with who could find the most and describe the most dinosaur species and they did all kinds of under underhand things to try and discredit each other's research and I think this might be something that Phil knows a bit about as well. Yeah, it, but it got quite nasty and some of these underhand tricks were... Well, tell me, what, what were some of those? Well, they, they, they would write articles in, in newspapers trying to discredit each other's research. They would send their assistants in, in disguise to try and steal or damage each other's fossils. In, in some situations, when, when they dug fossils out of a particular location, if there was anything left that they couldn't carry, they would smash the remains so that the other one didn't, didn't get their hands on it. So they were sort of pretty nefarious characters, the two of them. Did, uh, now, you probably don't want to talk about anybody that's living today, but do you get a sense that there's similar levels of rivalry that go on in, uh, well, that it might continue to go on? Oh, I don't know if I'd say similar levels, but I don't, I don't think anyone's out there destroying fossils. But in in terms of how much uh, different people in, in um, different fields of paleontology dislike each other I think there's still a, a lot of rivalry out there and I, d- I don't know why but all of the paleo fields seem to encourage a lot of rivalry so it's exactly the same with paleoanthropologists a lot of them uh, are very hot-blooded and dis- disagree very firmly with each other on different points and I'm not exactly sure why that is uh, well I guess scientists are human just like the rest of us and uh, Phil Hoare I understand that Marsh had an Australian accent. We have documentary proof of that, do we not? Well, thanks to me, we did. Yeah, when I was at the uh, Smithsonian a couple of years ago, it was the 100th anniversary, so I got to dress up as O.C. Marsh and walk around the grounds and talk to people about all the fossils he'd found. And, uh, yeah, there were all these people like, well, how comes he got an Australian accent? I'm like, Every, everyone had an Australian accent 100 years ago, didn't you know that? <laughs> yeah, so we are a truly multicultural nation. <laughs> Uh, no, there's another character, John, that uh, you were talking about earlier today, uh, and it's not just a, a character, but also a whole country. Uh, China, in fact, has really emerged in recent years in the field of fossil. Well, tell me first about the uh, the, the character in, that you met in China. Yeah, Professor Xu Xing is uh, he's really one of the most 
prolific paleontologist in the world today and he's um he's he's probably personally responsible for discovering about half of the 40 or so feathered dinosaur species but he may he may have described something like 60 to 100 species now and he you know he's in his 40s so he's still fairly young guy as well but um he's really the top expert on on feathered dinosaurs in 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 the world at the moment what sort of attribute do you think someone like him would need to get to that sort of level? He's had to have a real mixture of skills, actually, because a lot of these feathered dinosaurs have been discovered by uh, amateurs, by farmers, by uh, other people who are just going out. And there's this army of farmers who are going out digging up fossils in China now. So he's, you know, he's had to have a great network of people, and he's he has to be quite a skilled negotiator as well. So you know, he's he's not a guy with a huge ego. In in some ways, he's quite quiet and mild mannered, but he's been able to sort of marshal all of these different skills to be finding dinosaurs himself but then to be using this network of people to discover stuff as well and China's been a very closed place uh, in terms of science until the last 15-20 years but he actually studied um, in in the US I, th- I think in New York and um, so he, he d- sort of developed this network of US contacts as well and he, he's been able to bring a lot of this Chinese science to the rest of the world and there are very few Chinese sorry, very few fields in where China Chinese research is on the international stage in the same way that it is with paleontology today. I find that fascinating that uh, the the skills, the key skills that you've pinned there are personal skills and more than the technical skills. Uh, but he must have a lot of technical skills as well to go, to back that up. Oh, that kind of stuff goes without saying. Yeah, no, I'm sure, I'm sure, you know, to be a paleontologist, then you have to have a lot of knowledge in this area, and you have to be uh, good at going up and uh, going, finding fossils and preparing them, and knowing what you're doing. And yeah, I'm sure he has all of that stuff as well. Uh, and also the analytical skills. Uh, now, Phil, I think you must have met some really interesting characters in your time in paleontology, or your, well, what you've seen of these sort of people. Can you? Are there any come to mind in particular? Um, off the top of my head, like you never want to name names because it's a very small industry and everyone knows everyone. But um, no, I've met some amazing guys. Like uh, one of the gentlemen I was working for in uh, London, uh, he was uh, digging up a lot of the fossils that come out of Whitby and the uh, the fossil coast in England. So the the huge ichthyosaurs and things like that, which were big fish lizards that were swimming around during the Jurassic and things, um, they come from a. They were first found by a very famous person called Mary Anning. And most people in paleontology know Mary Anning, but outside of Mary, uh, the paleontology, they don't think they know. But if you say seashells, she sells seashells by the seashore, that's Mary Anning. Mary Anning was the person who was collecting the shells from the fossil coast and selling them along the seashore. So one of the most famous people in paleontology, A, was a woman, which is amazing, and B, um, everyone's heard of but don't know why, and it's because of this little rhyme. Uh, that's that's a fantastic story. I like that. Uh, and she sounds like she had such a humble beginning. And uh, speaking of, of personal skills, John, what, what got you into writing this book in the first place? I've always been very interested in dinosaurs and paleontology. I did, I did a master's course at the Natural History Museum in London before I started out as a journalist. So, I did, you know, I'd had an interest in fossils and dinosaurs 
and then over my 15-year career as a journalist, I'd often written about dinosaurs. So I'd been sort of following the feathered dinosaur discoveries piecemeal by writing odd stories about them, So you know, from that first discovery in 1996. And I, and I realised about three or four years ago that it was just kind of showing this incredible transition from uh, reptiles through to birds and that there was just this whole wave of discovery coming out of China. And um, really, we knew so much now now about how all of these different bird traits had evolved in dinosaurs but I realised that you know the general public doesn't know very much about this and still wasn't very aware that birds were dinosaurs and uh, it just seemed like great material for a book and I wanted to share that idea with other people. You, you must have had some great experiences I, I gather you would have done a lot of travel to write the book to do? Um, I didn't do heaps of travel. I, I did go to China and uh, I, in, I, I interviewed people at a variety of museums in, in London and some other parts of the world. So, no, I wish I'd done heaps of uh, travel for the book, but a, a lot of my um, reporting for the book all over the world was, was done by telephone. And you write for Australia, or sorry, you're the editor of Australian Geographic. How did you get that? Because that's quite a prestigious position. Uh, I mean, Australian Geographic is about the sixth magazine that I've worked at now, so I come from a background of uh, working at many different science magazines in London and Washington and now in Sydney. So prior to Australian Geographic, I was working at a science magazine called Cosmos. So, so yeah, it's just been my career, really. But I'm, I'm very lucky. I have my dream job, I think. Yeah, yes, it's a fabulous, and it's a, uh, a fabulous book. And uh, you thinking about writing another one? It's, it's, there was a lot of work involved in that book, so uh, I, d I think I want a bit of a break, but yeah, I do have some plans afoot for, for another dinosaur book, in fact, already. Well, uh, John, uh, you know where to come when, when, uh, you <laughs> when you've got one ready to go. Uh, we'd love to interview you again on uh, Fuzzy Logic, and before then, even. <laughs> so, uh, John Pickerel, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. And Phil Hall from the National Dinosaur Museum, Thank you very much. Thanks, guys, and thanks for coming around. This has been fun. And don't forget to buy John's book and the Australian Geographic, of course. And the book is Flying Dinosaurs, How Fearsome Reptiles Became Birds, published by New South.